What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. My guest today is PD Commander Chris Perez. He and I are good friends. We go way back, and we talk about lessons that he's learned uh, on the beat, being a cop, and uh, in life in general, leadership lessons, lessons in humanity. It is a fantastic conversation. Uh, please enjoy. So, Chris, it's uh, thanks for sitting down and wrapping with me, brother. Thanks, my man. It's good to be on here. Long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) Good to be here. Finally, we got to catch up. I'm happy to have you. It's It's so funny, Chris, because you and I have known each other for a long, long time, and yet our lives had took... You know, we started our, our young families right around the same time, and then our yeah. lives went in very different directions. You know, I went to the righteous side of the fire department, and, and you went down the dark path of policing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that reminds me of a story that um, I shared with my Uncle Dave. He was a fire captain with LAFD for years, and, and since I've been a cop, he'd always give me a hard time. And we'd, we'd vacation together and laugh and stuff. And he, he just retired a few years ago. We were on the beach, and he's had, popping some cold ones, having a good uh, good time. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I was teasing him because I said, well, now that you're retired, what, what are you going to do? You're leaving the fire department, so you're going to have to actually work now. And, you know, jokes about your thumb going bad playing Xbox and whatever. And he, he looked at me, and he got all serious, you know. And he <laughs> kind of goes, Chris, he goes, look, you can laugh all you want. He goes, but there are. There's one universal truth that we share as, as cops and firefighters. And I was like, all right, Dave, what is that? He's about he said, to drop some knowledge. <laughs> exactly. He goes, we both want to be firefighters. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, touche. Yeah. And then, isn't that the truth? But yeah. And it is amazing. I mean, we, we've taken these two different paths together. And, you know, we worked together back in the day in REI. Yeah. Selling, selling out of our days. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, we just kind of took off, you know. Yeah. Well, that's so I want to talk to you about I want to talk to you about your career and some of the highlights because you've done some really amazing things. Um, so but before we go there and, you know, I want to talk about the leadership lessons that you've learned. And um, because I think that there's so much that, you know, now that you can reflect back after 20 plus years of policing, you know, there's so many lessons that you've learned that I want you to share with us. So let me ask you this. How, you know, going from REI employing, wearing your Birkenstocks with your wool socks and that's uh, and I'm saying that because that's exactly what you wore, <laughs> and you cannot deny it. Uh, not Crocs, not Crocs and socks. No, no, no. Birkenstocks <laughs> and socks. That's yeah. That is the uniform of the day at REI back in the day, charged. anyway. So, how did you? What took you down that path? Well, first of all, let me go. Let me go by way back. Where did Chris come from? Right. Where'd you grow up? Right. Okay. Well, um, I was actually born in Miami, Florida, 1968. And within that same year, uh, my dad and my mom decided to move, uh, but my dad got transferred. My dad was an FBI agent. He came into the FBI in 1963, and we were working, uh, sorry, he was working. We were living in Florida in Miami, Coral Gables, and he got transferred to become the legal attache to the American Consular Office in Hermosillo, Sonora. So... We moved to Sonora in Hermosillo, and I went to school there. You know, I was a little kid, but as I grew up, I went to school with my brothers, Spanish-speaking schools, and albeit there were private schools, but we were going to school with uh, with kids there. And um, very, very pivotal experience for me. Very exciting experience as a kid. Great place to grow up. 
very, very interesting and unique perspective on things. Why do you say that? Um, well, we got into a bunch of cool stuff, you know, I mean, Hermosillo in the 1970s was, was still pretty raw, you know, um, <clears throat> if, if you travel at all in Mexico, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of room for uh, expansion and room for excitement. So a lot of a lot of rebar and finished unfinished buildings, right? Still to this day, that were probably there back in the seventies. But as kids, we really had free reign, you know, and we did a lot of cool stuff. We had a, met a lot of really neat people there, um, you know, setting vacant lots on fire and riding on the coke truck and all sorts of <laughs> cool stuff like that, you know. But um, I just uh, recall it being a very unique experience and, and really enjoyed living there and then um, moved back to the States um, in, in the 70s as well. And I experienced some pretty interesting cultural changes there as well. When I was in the United, uh, I'm sorry, when I lived in Mexico, I couldn't read. Um, well, I mean, obviously, obviously I had very Anglo features, right? And a lot of the kids that, that I went to school with did not have your typical Anglo features. And so I got called a lot of names, you know, gringo white boy and Wedito and all these things. And, um, <clears throat> and then moving back to the States, um, I was actually held back a grade because I couldn't read and write English. Mm. And so, you know, there's all sorts of epithets that come from that as well, being different and, and sticking out, you know? So, um, I really did my best as a young kid to kind of assimilate and kind of be invisible, right. Or at least transparent. And, yeah, I think, uh, you know, maybe people can relate to if they were military brats or, you know, moved around a lot as a kid, you, you kind of <clears throat> adapt very quickly and pick up things from other people. And, um, you know, that was kind of a, a big part of my youth, right? And then, and then moved to ultimately kind of spent my formative years, uh, uh, late elementary school, middle school and high school in Tucson. And then ended up here in Phoenix, um, you know, finishing up high school here and then moving on to my military experience. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, um, I joined the United States Navy. And um, as you well know, the Marines... Don't look at me like that. <laughs> as you well know, the Marines don't have their own medical staff. <laughs> and so uh, hospital corpsmen serve that role, right? They take care of the Marines in the field. Um, and uh, so I was a hospital corpsman and... Um, this was, you know, Desert Shield, Desert Storm era. And um, <clears throat> I went in 1990. So you were there, what, 91, 92? 90. I went in 90 as well. Yeah. September so, of 90. September. I went in June of 90, and I was in San Diego. And where were you at Camp Pendleton? Yeah. Well, so I started my little my journey at MCRD San Diego, and then yep. went up the coast and was spent a few years in San Diego, yeah. and then went out to 29 Palms. So we were probably on the ground there at the same time. Yeah, pretty much. Wild. Yeah, so but I never went to Sick Bay, yeah. so you never saw me. <laughs> that's, the Sick Bay Commando—that's the—that's the term that they used to give people who show up at Sick Bay. That's all the right. Time. Yeah, and um, I really enjoyed it. You know, I like—I—I I really enjoyed uh, patient care. Really enjoyed taking care of people, um, and I got a lot of really cool opportunities while I was in the Navy. Um, so. Yeah, so I was stationed initially um, in Long Beach they, uh, during Desert Storm, and right after Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait, uh, I was in core school. And so we were preparing to go to war. You know, we obviously didn't know what was, you know, behind that wall. And so I had actually put in, uh, you know, the chit to get taken to um, 8404. So I wanted to go Marine regs. I wanted to go 
work with the Marines and, and be in the field. And they took the class ahead of mine and they took a class behind mine for both that. And then they said, hey, you're going to Long Beach. And I knew nothing about the Long Beach Naval Hospital. I knew nothing about really Long Beach at all. <clears throat> and uh, so, yeah, that's where I went the first two years. Um, we were awaiting casualties there and we only received one casualty uh, from the theater there. And then really kind of mothballed uh, after that. <clears throat> and... Um, so yeah, that that hospital now is like a Staples and a Starbucks. It's gone <laughs> long gone now. Um, and uh, so after that, um, I was able to go to a, a, an advanced school. So I had always had an interest in um, psychiatry and mental health, and so I went to become a neuropsychiatric technician. So that was cool. Went to uh, Fort Sam Houston, and uh, it was actually an Army school, a joint school with the Army. And so I got to meet some of our Army brothers and sisters and never had any contact with them. Um, and then uh, came back, and I worked in San Diego. And I worked um, at uh, what used to be Balboa, which is now the Naval, Hospi uh, Naval Hospital San Diego. They don't call Balboa anymore? No, no. no. Um, and, you know, Balboa Park's still adjacent there. Right. still intact. <laughs> but, yeah, they call it the... Naval Hospital San Diego, mm. and um, big learning hospital, uh, really great place to work as well. Had a really good experience. My my military experience was was really good. I mean, granted, you know, I I, I wasn't sent you know to combat or anything like that, and um, got a lot of respect for those people and dealt with with them, took care of them after they they'd been in combat. Um, but yeah, that was kind of my experience, and um, so I was stateside the whole time in the Navy, which is like you know unicorn status right yeah you didn't have the board to go ship board or that which right, is right you know i've heard lots of different experiences about that but which i can't speak to because i didn't go anywhere either they right. i went into uh tanks and the they floated tanks right up until um and by floating it i mean they would send them on uh western pacifics and um different uh pre-deployment uh, where they would put the apparatus out in the ocean on these with all kinds of Marines out in these forward positions mm -hmm. in the in the ocean. Well, they stopped doing that with tanks right when I came in, right? Mm. And I came in, I was in training uh, right when Desert Storm kicked off, and they were, of course, prepping us. They're like, hey, you guys are going to war. You're going to die. Get your shit together. Yeah. And so we were uh, really spun up, right, very wound up, and training was very intense. And then we came out of training, and they're like, yeah, war's over. Yeah, a <laughs> hundred hundred hour conflict happened, and then, then that was that. Yeah, <laughs> talk yeah. about sending some freaking you know high strung dudes back to Pendleton. Yeah, um, so we go to Pendleton and then and prepped the the barracks and we started training and waiting for everyone to come home, and then uh, we transitioned a couple of year you know a year and a half later we transitioned into from the M sixty tank into the M one Abrams, mm -hmm. and that was. Uh, uh, and they don't, you know, they were like at that point transitioning armor and to not floating them. So I never went anywhere. Yeah. I mean, I stayed in the United States. Or 21, to, 29 Palms. Which is 29 Palms, which is pretty glorious. Cultural. For those who know, you universe. know. Yeah, big art yeah. community there, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of films make that. That's, that's a, true. That's out past uh, Palm Springs, right? Yeah, it's and, right next to Palm Springs. Amboy, is Amboy out there? Ooh, yeah, that's a name I hadn't thought of in a while. Yeah, it's it's what like sixty miles kind of over to the northeast of from Palm Springs over mm -hmm. the mountain range. The most the best part of being at Twenty Nine Palms was I started rock climbing, and we're right next to Joshua Tree National yeah. Park, yep. and the rock climbing there. If anybody knows, fantastic. Indeed, yeah, if you're not a climber, you need to go climb there. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, and it's I mean now it's kind of hipster 
hipster center of the universe. J tree is. Yeah, yeah, a lot of you know a lot of flat hats and da- <laughs> daisy corn thrones, <laughs> thrones. What are they? No, oh. daisy daisy crowns. Yeah, I don't uh, know what that is. So you can, so you can, so, it, but that's an interesting jump you made, right? So you went from being a navy hospitalist, for lack of a better expression, mm-hmm. right? So. Um, working in the medical field and then you know you came out and you were finding your way going to school and didn't you study history or something yeah yeah so truth be told i was looking for the easiest way to get a degree because i i just wanted to be done with it and uh, you know i had a kid on the way and so uh, i thought hey uh, i'll become a history major right i love history like to look at history you know i'm into museums and um, so i ended up shooting myself in the foot in a way because uh, there's no multiple choice questions in history, <laughs> right? <laughs> Everything's a written essay. Uh, and so <clears throat> in addition to that, I had to read at least two or three books per class. And so at the time I was like, man, I just wanted to be done with it. You know, I was young and, and really impatient. Um, but I got such a rich education as a result of that. Um, and, and specifically, I studied Latin American history, which is super rich, especially in this this part of the country. But um yeah, and um, I really just wanted a degree to do that. I thought initially I was going to go into the FBI, uh, like my dad. <clears throat> and then um, uh, I was finishing up my degree, and um, I started kind of looking for work. Uh, I was interested in police work. A friend of mine was a cop at the time, and that's when we were working together. And um, so wait, But I have a question. So what, what turned... what? I mean, I know your dad being in the FBI, that must have planted a pretty deep seed because yeah. going into the Navy and, and I, I guess I'm hung up on this whole, you went into medicine, right? As a, you made a choice, went in that direction and then we're headed toward law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I mean, honestly, I have quite a serendipitous life. I'm like, uh, like the Mr. Magoo of, of my career because I've stumbled into everything and, you know, clearly God's looking out for me because I've, I've just fallen into things my whole life. You know, I mean, I met my wife and, and she, truth be told, I, I told her, yeah, you know, I'm going to go back to college and get my degree. And, you know, my wife, she's pretty tenacious. And so she kind of held me to that. And I did get a degree. And then, um, I've, I've always been, um, I guess, attracted by or enamored by law enforcement work. I mean, obviously I had a deep respect for it because my dad, you know, working for the Bureau for all those years and the people that I'd met, his connections and that. So uh, it just seemed kind of like the natural progression. And um, I, I wasn't really wanting to go to medical school and I'm just not geared that way. And I didn't want to go back into the military. I had a couple options there that just uh, were offered to me that <clears throat> just just didn't seem right at the time. And, um, and, you know, my hat's off to those guys who can fly around the world and, and, you know, at a moment's notice and do that. And, and, um, it just, I wasn't ready for that at that time. And so I'd settled down and wanted to kind of do something stateside. And then I started looking at law enforcement and, uh, had some friends who were in law enforcement and they, they said, you know, we think you'd be a good fit. And so I started taking steps to do that. And in 1997, I got picked up and, um, just jump right into it. Yeah. Well, and it's uh, it, it's funny to me that you talk about serendipity because I think that <laughs> luck to me favors the prepared, right? And so serendipity it, it plays a role, but being prepared to seize that challenge when it or seize that opportunity when it manifests itself is huge. And you know, I guess you know, to me, I, I appreciate that you're you're talking about the transition from. Um, you know, to me, this, this career direction in medicine, but then coming out and going and getting a history degree, it really history 
an education in history really broadens perspective to me. 100%. Super important, right? And I think all education can do that. But history particularly, when you start looking back at the way the world has formed and society has shaped been shaped by the things that people are doing, it can really change your direction. Um, and you already had the seed planted. Yeah. And so, you know, and then you have a friend who's in law enforcement, yeah. like, wait a minute, that's actually a path that might actually work for me. Yeah. So, so, so one of the things I, t- or two things I took away from, uh, one, my degree and also from history is one, um, the, the benefit of having a formal education, mm. right? Um, I did because my dad was first generation, uh, Mexican and he's the first person in his family to go to university. So obviously there there was a you know kind of a buy-in from me there and obviously you know i I felt that i had this call to duty but also um it very clearly teaches young people how to follow directions and that's important and i built on what i'd already learned in the military and and i'd like to talk a little bit later because i think it translates well but i learned in the navy a very simple thing see one do one teach one Hmm. that's what i learned um in as a corpsman, but, but going back a little bit as a student, um, learning how to follow directions, right? A a large part of university and and I've gone on to get my master's degree and I teach as well. There's a lot of lazy teachers out there, right? (laughs) No offense to the teachers in general, but, um, I found myself, uh, it's very, there's formulaic sometimes, I guess I shouldn't say lazy, but if you look sometimes at what a teacher is assigning you, they're saying, I want this and I want this and I want this. If you can follow those three things, everything else is just the content, right? And the content isn't really arguable because it's your opinion oftentimes, unless it's factual information. So up to and touching, right? Like they said in the military. So I got very good at at following those instructions. But the second piece is um, I learned specifically from being a history major is the value of research. And so at the time I was like, man, why am I have to write this? Why do I have to do these footnotes? Why do I have to corroborate all this stuff? And I, serendipitously later down the road when I became a detective, I found super applicable being prepared for. Yeah. Right. Prepared to, to do the work, prepared to get in there, get your hands dirty yeah, and, and do that research and, and it pays dividends. Yeah. It's interesting. I listened to a conversation recently that some friends were having about the value of education in public safety. They were talking specifically about firefighting and you know, they were like, what, what's what does it matter? And like, well, hey, at a certain point in your career, maybe as a line firefighter, it's not necessarily the most important to have a degree and learn how to write. Yeah. But as you, you know, as you gain some momentum, right, there becomes a point in time in your career where you have to uh, lean on those skills, right? Writing documents, making requests, budget requests, things mm-hmm. of those natures where you're expanding your needs. And clearly as a, as a law enforcement officer, police officer, what have you, all the way down the track, whether you're a detective or even just writing up an accident report, the ability to write a cogent document is really important. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, the broader perspective that history provides as well, it, it just rounds a person out, right? Yeah. And I think that's there's there's so much value in that. Yeah. It's it's the legacy too, right? If you think about it, you know, I tell baby cops, I tell them, hey, these reports you're writing may be a hassle right now and you're in the middle of the night scratching something out that seems like it has no value. But I personally have worked on cases where we've done just a field interview on somebody and it's like, yeah, 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 we're going through the motions. But because somebody does a well-written report or field interview card, that could lead to the big one that catches a homicide suspect 
or somebody that, you know, violated one of your family members or something like that. So, so the value in that and just the legacy of what you leave, right? When I'm done with work, I'll retire. They won't remember who Chris was 10 years from now. There'll be a picture on the wall. Oh, I remember that dude. Nah, I think I saw him maybe one day, but realistically you pick up a police report that was crafted in 2007 um, that ended up leading to the conviction of somebody who did some horrible things. I mean, that's a win right there. That to yeah. me, I, yep. yeah. Put a stake in it, cause it or a fork yeah. in it because it's done. Cause yeah. That's well, or the exact opposite, right? You pull out this document and you go, gosh, dang it, Chris. Yep. <laughs> you wrote this piece of crap document and now we have nothing to stand on. Yeah. Right? Yep. And it's funny, my wife is a speech pathologist and uh, in her business, they're assessing and, and writing reports on kiddos with disabilities. And she'll get reports sent to her that are just written so poorly mm -hmm. that she has to start all over. Yeah. Right. Because, and, and it does no service to the kiddos. And you know, if you, the other piece of this is risk that you introduce into the organization. Right? If you don't write a well-crafted document at some point, somebody could turn around and sue the organization or, or you create liability for the, your, for your organization at some place. And that's just and not helpful yeah. <laughs> at its very least. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to what we talked about in the beginning, right? Like, um, how, how did you get into this? I don't know, but the, the, you mentioned something about being ready, right? It's, you know, it's that battle readiness or, you know, listo, right? You, you're good to go. And those are the people that you can see are your, are your shining people where you work, right? That person who doesn't cut corners, who is, is um, focused on the mission, who's really crossing the T's, dotting the I's and doing mm -hmm. everything that, that they have to do, right? Mm -hmm. Even for the dress rehearsal, mm -hmm. they're giving it a hundred percent on a dress rehearsal. That's the person that I want investigating a case. That's the person that I want, you know, addressing medical patients that need help. That's the person that I want, you know, you know, putting out the fires, right? Those are the people that I want thinkers. I want, yeah. I want people that are, that I'm working with and also they're going to, you know, come and help me out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's talk about this for a second. So you've done a bunch of different things in the course of your career, which is really cool to me. You've been a, you know, you're obviously a beat cop. Mm -hmm. You still call them that? Are they still call yeah, beat cops. Yeah, beat cops walking the beat. <laughs> so I picture that guy walking around swinging his little baton, but that's it's just in my head. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you do a beat cop. You're a detective. You've been a lieutenant, mm -hmm. and that uh, you're a commander now. And in yeah. those positions, you've served in different capacities. Yeah. Um, I saw. I looked at your resume and saw that you were a school resource officer at one yeah. point. That's kind yeah. of. The, yeah. So let's talk about that part of your career. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because um, I, I went to that on a whim. I was in a position where, um, you know, there's politics in every organization. And in my opinion, and it's been corroborated by other people, I was kind of getting um, getting portrayed to be a certain type of person, right? Um, and an old timer, a guy named Andy, <clears throat> pulled me aside and uh, he said, look, you can grieve this thing that's going on. He said, but it may be career suicide for you. And... Uh, and he basically suggested I go away for a while and reinvent myself. And um, school resource was that vehicle. And, um, you know, I hate to say that it was like a second choice for me because I was only on about five years. And I was doing some really exciting stuff before that, working on a street crimes team, doing little hand-to-hand -hand drug deals, you know, working with, um, <clears throat> um, you know, human trafficking and, and, and all sorts of cool stuff. So it was very humbling uh, because my ego kind of told me, I was like, Hey, I think I'm flavor of the day, you know? And then this old timer told me go away for a bit. So I did. And I found that is where I learned that I really love to teach. And, you know, 
<clears throat> the job is not a blow off if you're ready and you take it serious. You know, there's a lot of value that can be put in for that. A lot of not not just relationships with you know the community and with students, but really um, teaching people about you know civics and about how the law works and what the role of law enforcement is. You know, and and I've heard you know from people about this uh, you know prison pipeline and and, and theories of about, you know, how SROs are used to get kids, you know, into prison. I, I don't know about that, but I can tell you my experience was definitely not that. Um, well, I, and I, I'm going to interject real quick. I am humbled by your response to that because I was fully prepared to just make fun of you, right? <laughs> That's quite all right. I can take it. Right. Well, I was like, okay, because in my mind's eye, this the SRO is just like this, like, silly job that we've created to provide, a, you know, a, a, a pumped up security officer in schools. So it but what I'm hearing you talk about is so much deeper than that, and I think yeah. it's kind of cool, actually. Yeah. So, so it's the uh, semi-retired officer is what is what I've heard it portrayed <laughs> as a lot of times, SRO, and and you know, and I knew that going into it because I had my own biases about it. Sure. And, and I found that again, if I'm malleable and I'm open to different ideas, and I listen to what the people are saying around me, it can be a good. So, it was great for me on on a, on a number of levels, and I don't you know want to belabor the joys of SRO work all, my, all afternoon, but a couple things. One, having my experience with the outdoors, um, during the summer, they have downtime and they work on lesson plans. Um, I ran out of lesson plans to write, so I actually developed a wilderness program and I got grant funding to take these kids, uh, who most of them have never been out of the city, right. um, to the sticks up in uh, White Mountains. And we took them on a three, four day backpacking trip, right? Three days leading up to it, experiential education, you know, obviously because I had a history in, uh, in um, <clears throat> education, you know, I was able to write a curriculum yeah. that was reasonable. And I actually shopped it out to some folks that were teachers and they said, yeah, this is, this is valuable. And then we got donations, people. Uh, and then I wrote a couple grant proposals and got gear from some companies and um, this program 20 years later is still in effect with our agency and it's super valuable. And, and I, uh, no joke, uh, have had three young men come back to see me at the department and two of them called, one of them just showed up in the blind and he's like, Hey, I just want to tell you, thank you. Uh, I was a POS when I was a kid and, and a real turd and, and you, you gave me a chance when other people didn't. He said, I just want you to know that I, I just got back from doing five years in the army um, and I was in Afghanistan and, um, I still remember and I just want to say thank you. And I was like, man, Dude, that's fantastic. <laughs> really hit me between the eyes. Yeah. That's badass. Yeah. And, uh, the other two guys too, same story. You know, they just said, Hey, I just want to say thanks and I appreciate it. And it was cool because, um, we did it in conjunction with the school district and I went out to the school counselors and said, Hey, can you nominate somebody that you think would be good for this? So yeah, that's a slippery slope, you know? And, and again, there's that that um, inner interchange that we had with, with teachers and, and counselors. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I really do appreciate you telling me that because there's so much that we can do for the people around us. And I think sometimes we're zipping around this world uh, very focused myopically on our own nonsense and our own stuff. Um, and you got to attend to that. But at the same time, we're surrounded by all kinds of people. And sometimes we just need to slow down a little bit and think about the impact that we can have. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly us in public safety have the ability to impact those around us if we're willing to, to 
take the time to do so. Yeah. And so what a neat program that you were involved with. They, they started and that's really cool. And the fact that it's still alive today really speaks to the value that it brings to the community. Yeah. That's so, awesome. And yeah. So the one, uh, one other thing I want to touch on real quick Yeah. to me, the other thing that's really kind of cool about, uh, you, you highlighting the fact that, you know, you said, well, I'm going to make this, I'm going to do something valuable here with this position. That's really, that's really powerful because sometimes we get assignments that we're not, uh, that we're maybe not our choice. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so what do we do with that assignment? Well, you make the best of it because everything that we do in life, there's an opportunity to learn something mm-hmm. and an opportunity to grow from it. And to me, that's exactly what you did. You said, well, there's probably some wisdom in this. I'm going to take this opportunity and go do something and I'm going to reflect. Absolutely. You could have gone and been better, but instead you went and were better. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, if I articulated that well. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I get it. Yeah, there's, it's rich value. I didn't get it at the time because I just thought I'm, I'm here working hard and I'm doing this and yeah. I, I'm the one who's being fed, right? Mm-hmm. Strictly through mm-hmm. trying to be of service and I don't want to toot my own horn. I'm just saying when, when I start getting really selfish and me, me, me and, and, you know, get all that stuff, I really just try and do something simple. And this is just, it's not my knowledge. It's been passed on to me by other men in my life and, and I just try and be of service to someone else. It can be something small scale, something big, right? You know, even just checking in with people. Hey, how are you doing today? Is there anything I can do for you, right? And um, and and that was it, right? I, I I'm telling you, man, uh, sleeping outside uh, <laughs> with a bunch of kids who are you know all amped up on you know monsters and sprees and and, and candy and stuff. It's like it takes patience, right? But I'm just thinking. I'm paying some dues and it's going to be a value to this kid. And ultimately it ends up paying me back, which is weird. Very, very strange, but enough about me. Let's talk about me, rain. (laughs) So, okay. So we jumped into SRO, but you, before that you were an officer. And I I want to ask you about, uh, what type of lessons did you learn being the junior officer in an agency, uh, kind of coming up, you know, you have, you've had all this experience before being in the military. You've worked for people before in, in leadership positions, and now you are coming in as this new guy um, coming into police work. Yeah. What are some lessons that you learned on the streets? Well, it, it, you know, dare I sound like the OG, you know, the old guys that came in. When you I are was, an old yeah, guy, I, know, I was going to say. When I came in, they, they would say things like, yeah, this job used to be fun, and man, there's all these rules and stuff like this now. And, and I find myself sometimes saying, you know, this job used to be fun. And, I, and again, I have a very different role now because it's more administrative. But <clears throat> when I first came on, the culturally it was very different. My friend was a cop in another agency and he said, he, I'm going to tell you a couple things that are going to help you be successful. I said, sure. And he said, keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything until you're asked. Take all the paper in your beat. Don't let anybody beat you to a call in your beat. Um, and don't say anything really for a year. And, you know, there's some cultural things within law enforcement, at least within my agency I can speak to, is, uh, is there's a lot of value in knowledge that other officers have, you know. So, for example, like I wouldn't go straight to my sergeant. Um, I would go to another officer, OG, that'd been around a while and say, hey, what do I do in this situation? They would counsel me and say, hey, try this, do that, you know. Um, and, and experience is what, what I was most attracted to. Um, longevity and time on the job really meant nothing to me because we all know that person who is just a living, breathing uniform who's been there 30 years and it doesn't mean anything. Um, but the people that have the experience and the knowledge base and were able to translate that, those are the people I was really attracted to because I, I was very interested in that. And that's kind of how I learned my craft as a teacher too, right? 
and again, going back to my experience, see one, do one, teach one, right? So see somebody do a, a search warrant and then have them help me write a search warrant. And then my job from then on, I'm on the hook to help other people do that too, right? Then I teach it to other people. And that's been a formula that I've just, you know, rinse and repeat my whole, my whole career. And, um, so leadership is, is, is very interesting. Um, I have always tried to do everything that I can within my power. And then when I run out of, or, or my power, meaning my knowledge base, Mm -hmm. and then I seek help, but I've learned as I get, uh, I got a little wiser on the job that I need to start bringing people in early on. Right. You don't want to have a forest fire on your hands and then go, I think I need help. Right. And that comes from experience is being able to see more of the field and say, okay, I'm predicting something's coming up. Something's going to happen. So I got to reach out. I'm going to call my buddy Ray. Hey, heads up. I got something going on here. I I think it comes with a little bit of self-confidence as well. Right. When you, when you begin to realize that, you know, that, uh, that that negative ego, right? We can set it aside a little bit and go, "Hey, I'm not all that. I mm-hmm. I'm going to surround myself with people who are intelligent and capable, and have them support this work." Yeah, yeah. Some people can't get out of their own way though, because it's got to be all their all themselves. Yeah, yeah. I, I've I've never really had a lot of that, just because I I, I think I'm self deprecating enough to kind of make fun of myself, and I'll be very quick to say, "I'm I don't know what's up right now. Can you help me out?" And when you do that, that's disarming to people, right? It's really hard to beat up on a guy or gal who's like, yo, I don't know what's going on in this situation. I mean, if they say it every day, <laughs> it's not going to be good. But, but you know, if, uh, if you've got that one person who's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm out of my league on this. Can you help me out? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll help you out, right? And um, that's, that's kind of how I've always tried to be is just, you know, hey, I need a little help on this. Or, or what would you do in this situation, right? And, right. And, and as your game improves, you learn how to craft questions a little bit better. If you were in my situation... What would you do, right? Not like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Will you help me, right? right. Or, um, hey, I've got two ideas. Which, which would you think is best? Right. And that way you can lean on somebody with some experience. Yeah. I think it's important, too, to seek counsel from your subordinates, right? Mm-hmm. If we're talking about from that perspective, allow them to share what they know. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, the level that you and I are at right now, you have people who are the true subject matter experts in their arena. So... We, we value those people. So yeah. bring them in and say, all right, here's what I'm thinking. Share your, share your thoughts on my, on my proposal or what would you do? What would you recommend? Yeah. I, I have a, I have a, a buffet style of leadership. Mm-hmm. We're working on a project. There's the, you know, the, the phrase stakeholder, right? Mm-hmm. In your organization, you don't work in a vacuum yep. and, and at our level and um, basically we play chess, not checkers, right? We have to put our fingers on that queen and say, okay, if I move here, then this, if I here move here, then that. So we've got to strategize. So my buffet style is if it's possibly going to involve three to five people, I'll invite those three to five people in on the conversation and say, here's, here's the table. There's plenty of food. You're welcome to the table. And then they can decide, I don't want in on this. I'm good. Thank you. Right. I trust your judgment. Or they can say, yeah, I would like it to seat at a table. All I need is, can you do this for me? Fair enough. I'm talking about if we're working on a project or something yeah. like that. And so at a buffet, you can eat what you want and you don't have to. But sometimes we may not, you know, I may not be down with mushu pork, but at least you've asked me if I'd like some mushu pork. Right. Right. And and I find that I've wrote most into, wrote most into trouble with, with folks in an organization is when they feel that they're being left out or X'd out. Yeah. I think that's important. I think that happens at every level. 
right? I think about that in my as you as you're saying that I'm like, this is this affects my home life, right? My ability to have a to be th- when I get in the most trouble is and you said this already, but I'm going to say it in a different way. When when I'm thinking about what Rain wants mm-hmm. is when I get in trouble with my mm-hmm. with my spouse, right? Because I'm like, I'm not thinking about what the household needs or what the family needs. I'm operating solely on my own agenda, and so when I do that, if I do that at work, same thing. Who? How many stakeholders? How many people? Are involved in this organization who are going to be negatively impacted by my wanton decisions and I'm just <laughs> right. throwing stuff around, doing my own thing. Yeah, right. You have to take into consideration the the, the players in the game. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think it's a very wise, uh, very wise uh, piece of information there. And it, and like I said, it can be applied at every level. You know, if you're, I'll use our my uh, my uh, backdrop. If you're a, uh, a firefighter in a station. And you're like, hey, I'm running my own program today. No, you're not. Right. You're on a crew with right. other people who who have to be uh, operating together. Right. Right. You got to be thinking about your team and yeah. what your team needs, especially yeah. for the company officer. Right. And I, I think the uh, you know you have to have a certain amount of flexibility in your leadership and and take into consideration the needs and wants of your players. Yeah. If you I, want th- them I to think be successful. For, and for, I think for cops it's difficult. Yeah. Uh, because we don't you know eat and you know and cohabitate together yeah. for long periods of time. Yeah. Sometimes you may have a team, but it's, but it's a, a grouping of people that just work for one year together. Mm. And so, you know, the leader on that team has a very difficult task to cohese everybody and say, okay, mm. here's the direction we're going. So that's why that person has to be highly communicative. Yeah. So let me ask you a question because in, in both of our industries, you have high risk work that has mm. to be done. And there's this concept of uh, a high reliability workforce, right? Where if one person doesn't do their portion of the work correctly, bad things happen. Yeah. And so clearly on a fire company, right? You have your four players, generally speaking. And if one person decides to opt out and do something rogue, bad things happen. Yeah. But in uh, a police precinct or a unit, how is that same... How do you build? Because the most important piece to me is trust. You got to build interoperability and trust in that unit. So how do you do that in a workforce that is oftentimes working independent of each other? Yeah. So uh, for for a patrol function, it's it's going to be very incumbent upon the leader to kind of force communication with people, mm-hmm. and a lot of that can be done with training, right? Um, where maybe we don't sit down in the same room and say, "Okay, Rain, I have a problem with the way that you talk to me." I don't know that, you know, that's not going to work with cops, especially. Uh, but what may work is say, hey, what we're going to do today is we're going to go practice building searches. So we're going to get with our tactical folks. We've got a, we've got a structure that we're going to go through and we walk through it together and, and we, we learn the lessons. Right. So so we communicate through learning and every every cop in America will talk about officer safety. Right. <clears throat> and that is a non-negotiable. Right. So we don't argue that that's if, you know, hey, if, if we can make officers safety safer, let's do it. And so sometimes maybe somebody would work under the guise of that. Hey, we're going to do a little it's team building, but you're not calling it team building. You right. say we're going to go work on clearing this building. You sneak in the team building. Exactly. <laughs> it's the uh, <laughs> yeah, the covert, the covert team building. Right. Check. Um, surreptitious. Uh, and so that I think that's kind of how it is. And then in the firehouse, we watch backdraft. Yeah, <laughs> we do it together, and we eat ice cream while we do it. That's how we bond. Lots of high fiving. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, so so I think I think that's that's a, a a way for cops to do that. And um, you know, just strictly, they spend a lot of time together, right? And um, yeah, it just seems like that would be 
it would be, it'd be challenging to make that happen. Yeah, right? So is. you have to plan it and, and be deliberate in that model. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, you know, you run into trouble of people being ostracized as well mm-hmm. and kind of left out. So you'll have teams of teams within one team. Mm-hmm. So you've got these mm-hmm. three who, who click together. They respond to calls for service. They're backing each other up where this person's just kind of doing their own thing. <clears throat> so a supervisor needs to find out, Hey, why is this person on the outs? This guy or gal, why are they on the outside? Are they being pushed out or are they finding their way out on their own? And then how do you, how do you get that back together? So it's a very, very challenging thing, especially in these times, you know, law enforcement's a very, very tough field to begin with. And it's very tough right now, just based on narrative, what's going on across the country. Yeah. What, um, I know that in the course of your career, you've done, you know, you've done sex crimes and, and other stuff like that. What has been, you know, when you think about the most challenging component of your career, what has been one of the things that has kept you up at night? Yeah. So when you use the phrase done sex crimes, I think the best thing to say is I've worked is sex crimes. Is that what I crimes. said? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Is that, is that how that came out of my mouth? Let's just clarify that. I have not committed okay. to sex crimes. I have investigated sex crimes. Yeah. Um, you labored in the in field of... <laughs> all, all kidding aside, I've, uh, I've been challenged by a number of things. Um, <clears throat> and there's a couple of things that have really jumped out. I, I would have to say one of the most challenging and one of the most rewarding times is when I did work as a special victims detective. So investigating sexually motivated crimes of, of adults and children. And also doing some cyber work. So I got into, you know, I was listening to one of your casts a while ago from the guy from uh, Homeland Security. Yep. Yeah. And um, I forgot his name. But anyway, he... Uh, uh, Austin Barrier. Yeah. Austin was talking about cyber investigations and stuff. And, (laughs) and, you know, uh, when I had done them, they were a collateral duty back in like 2005, 2006. So very early kind of inceptions of chat rooms and, and whatnot. And that was very rewarding because to me, it was like pioneering right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There really was not a template to go from. And uh, I worked with another another detective who'd done that. And so I did follow on with that. But that was very, very intriguing to me. Um, and just simply working with sex offenders in general, you know, just um, knowing, I, I, I really learned a lot of lessons about myself working with people. And, and <clears throat> to me, my experience is that most sex offenders are trained liars. Mm-hmm. So I, I would use this analogy with people if if the very first sexual thought that you had had as a child or whatever, somebody grabbed you and said, that's disgusting. Don't you ever do that. Push that away. You're going to go to hell or you're going to go to jail or you're a freak. You're going to suppress that. Right? So these are people who are living 20, 30, 40, 50 years with this secret, right? Mm -hmm. With this secret, um, attraction that they have or, or compulsion or acting out on these things. Right. So, so for me, when I began interviewing these folks, I really had to step up my game in patience because my bias tells me I'm going to go in there. I'm going to get in the box with them, you know, and I'm going to sweat them out and all this stuff. And it's like, they just ended up making mincemeat out of me because this person has been planning for this day for years. Right. right. Maybe not planning for a conversation. But they've been weaving this, ni- this, this sure. lie, this narrative for sure. so long. Sure. You've got your story laid out, right? Yeah. And um, it was foolish for me to walk in and think I'm going to unwind that clock and say, okay. Mm-hmm. And so what I learned, um, I would get called out of, the, out of the house a lot of times at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning for crimes that occurred and all times of the day. <clears throat> and my, my wife and I kind of came up with this agreement that I would not be back for at least six hours. 
<laughs> so in at the six hour mark, she could call and say, Hey, what's up? Or I would check in and say, Hey, everything's cool. You know, here's where we're at. We're going to do a search warrant on this person's place, or I'm, you know, having a, an examination done on this victim, blah, blah, blah. So, um, I learned a, a bunch of valuable lessons from that. And, and I learned, you know, pertaining to the topic here is leadership, you know, learned how to lead other people, um, which is basically just being persuasive. Right. And so if you can convince somebody that you are worthy of hearing their story, albeit ugly or scary or embarrassing or rude or whatever, then you can really, you know, start working from there. I guess yeah. I'm kind of, kind of crudely trying to explain it, but yeah, well, I think that what I hear you saying is you have to be able to establish a rapport and mm -hmm. be able to connect in a way that makes this person willing to open up to you. Yeah. Right. So that you can make some headway toward you know, unearthing the crime or whatever yeah. it is yeah. and getting them to, you know, uh, divulge what's going on. Right. To be, well, I see, I see, I've, I had seen a lot of cops making the mistake of forcing the time. Right. So well, that's how I see it on TV, right? So yeah. good cop, bad cop. Well, thing, that's right? it. This, is, this brings us in the whole idea of bias, right? Yeah. And and I worked with a dude that that um, you know, he he's like, well, what do you, what do you think? You know, he's training me, and we're we're talking to this guy who had supposedly killed his uncle with a ball peen hammer, and um, we go in to interview him, and this guy's not making contact eye contact with me, and we walk out. And my 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 trainer goes, what do you think, man? I go, he's guilty, and I said, why? He goes, because he's not looking at us, right? I I go, that's a tell, and. And then my trainer goes, well, man, um, this guy's from Navajo Nation, and a lot of Navajo people are not into making eye contact. It's a sign of disrespect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, culturally, I had no idea. Right. So that's a valuable lesson I learned right there. Kind of embarrassing at the time. I was like, oh, okay. So as your game kind of steps up, you learn things about people, but yeah. you learn that there is no silver bullet when it comes to talking with people. There is no all right, I'm going to break this guy. I'm going to do it. You know, um, there's other modalities of interview and interrogation that have since been debunked as being, you know, coercive or, <clears throat> or what have you. And I find that, that my best formula was just being normal, being kind to people, treating them with dignity and respect. Mm. And if, if they're going to tell you, they're going to tell you. Okay. So that begs the question. If you walk into a room and you have a good reason to believe this person committed this heinous crime, how do you control that for yourself? How do you manage that emotion? Yeah. Um, well, for me, there's really not emotion because it's it's not my family member. So okay. So you can kind of you're able to detach. Yeah, I had come across some cases that um, I had conflicts with because either I knew the perpetrator. Um, there had been a case that that I had known one of the victim's family members. And I had a conflict. And so I opted with this other detective. I said, I need you to interview this guy because <clears throat> I cannot. And um, so, so really for me, it was, um, it was uh, more of a patience thing and it was a discipline thing. And I was just trying to see how disciplined I could actually be about mm -hmm. it and not lead the question. And, you know, you'd noticed on here, just in a normal conversation, I've jumped in a couple times. You know, that's kind of the rhythm of the conversation. Yeah. We've known each other and we banter as well. We've known each other a long time. But with an interview, especially of, of some significance, you know, silence is gold. And um, I learned this concept of a verbal pause where in a verbal pause, if you're having a conversation or you're narrating something or you're, you're speaking to a crowd and you take a moment, it lures people in, right? <laughs> it's this idea of a verbal pause. And so 
when, when you're talking with somebody who's accused of a serious crime, simply by just waiting, they're going to fill in those gaps because there's right. that awkward silence, especially with somebody who thinks that I've rehearsed this thing my whole life. I'm just going to wait this dude out. This guy, Chris, is a, a tool. I'm just going to sit here. He's going to get bored because I've seen on TV. They're going to read me Miranda. And then he's going to get in my face, call me son of a bitch. And Pound then, the table. Yep. Bang <laughs> on the table a little bit and then take away my donut and water. <laughs> yep. And then it's done. And so more realistically, um, part of my routine was just to build a lot of report, just like you said. So, so I, give, I give me an example of what that looks like. Cause, so I read, I, I was telling you about that book I read earlier, mm -hmm. the uh, fear, anxiety, or no, what the hell is it called? I wrote down. Fear, ego. authority, and failure. No. Ego, ego authority, and failure. <laughs> I'm going to say it 25. Wrong, 25 <laughs> more times. Ego, authority, and failure. It's a great book, but he talks about having hard conversations and being able to um, navigate through. And he, the person who wrote this book, uh, Derek Gaunt, I believe his name is, he is a hostage negotiator. So, mm -hmm. which I think there's probably a lot of crossover. So what are some of the tools that you use to, to get people to start talking? So the verbal pause is one of them. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you like, what are things that you do in those conversations? Yeah. So there's an, uh, you know, there's to begin with that person knows the gig, they know they're under arrest, right? <clears throat> and also they know that you're going to talk to them. And at some point in time, they think you're going to introduce Miranda. They always do on TV. So uh, for me, I would buy some time by just dealing with biographical information. Hey, I need to get your name. Where do you live? What's your date of birth? Right? So you're talking about something that is not a hot button issue. Okay. How long have you been working there? Okay. Oh, you work for a school district? Oh, okay. Oh, I used to work in the school district. Uh, what did what, you do? Oh, third grade teacher. Oh, I've, I've dealt with third graders before. So you're already kind of establishing a rapport yeah. and, and there's no trick. It's no, it's just, you're, you're talking to somebody, right? Um, but me personally, I just wouldn't introduce Miranda for 30, 40 minutes. Right. And, um, <clears throat> if the person asks, you know, can I leave? You tell them, no, you can't leave. And so I would just be very forthright with people. So I kind of had a, a scripted thing, you know, rain, you're under arrest. <clears throat> you understand that, right? Yeah. Okay. So the reason we picked you up is because of these conversations that you had with this young girl online and those are inappropriate and they're illegal. So I'm not going to lie to you. You're looking at some big league charges here, but I will tell you this. I'm not going to lie to you. So here's what I'm going to do. I just want to hear your side of the story. I may ask you some questions. And in the end, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a report. I'm going to take that report and I'm going to give it to an attorney. That attorney is going to take it to a judge. And at some point in time, you're going to have to speak to that. So, you know, and then tell them, hey, you know, again, I would remind people all the time, again, you, you don't have to talk to me if you don't want to. You have the right to an attorney, blah, blah, blah. Very few people have invoked on me during my career. Um, when you say that, you mean the right to in, remain silent? The right, yes. Yeah, I don't want to talk to you. Um, and for, <clears throat> for serious, serious stuff, you know, I mean, even in somebody's home, when we have belief that there's images of child pornography on their computer, you know, sexual exploitation of a minor, we'd go to their house and I'd just tell them straight up, Hey, we got a tip that you have this in your computer. Can I come inside and talk to you? And they're like, yeah. And I talk to them and I'd say, okay, I, I, I want to advise you of your rights. These are my rights or your rights. And I even give them a form and say, take a look here. I'll read it to you. And then you can read it yourself. And basically you are signing away your rights. Because of what I want to do is I'd, I'd like to confirm, because you're telling me that there's no images on your computer that are illegal or inappropriate. Is that correct? And they're like, yep. So, so we can get rid of this right now. We can take care of this if, if you allow me to look in there. And um, again, you have the right to tell me to go away. 
on 10 times out of 10, they say, okay. So I'd have another detective with me, you know, over there working on the computer, running software that <coughs> searches through images very quickly. And, you know, they'd come up with an image and I'd just say, okay, so we're going to stop right here, take them into custody and say, I don't want you to talk about this at all. Um, and then, you know, they'd have to address those. So, so there's a very big difference, right? I'm kind of paraphrasing, but there's a difference between being in custody and, and out of custody. I'm not a legal expert. I'm, you know, just a cop. Um, but in my, my past experience that just talking to people like people is the way to go. Yeah. So it's, it, it's interesting to me. And I know this is maybe a, a leap for some people, but when I think about, you know, you're talking to, um, you know, criminals or suspects, if you mm -hmm, will. Mm -hmm. Um, and anybody else, you know, who's outside of this arena, um, the ability to have conversations about tough topics, I think some of those tools are, are really important, right? I think, and you didn't talk about this directly, but I think listening is super important, right? Because you're listening for things that you can um, connect to, right? Like, you, you know, you talk yeah. about the, what do you do for a living? Oh, you work for a school district. Oh, I, I have a connection point that we can make. Mm -hmm. So when you're establishing rapport, I think the ability to establish rapport is really an important part about relationship building. And clearly in this particular case, you're talking about relationship building for the purpose of gathering more information and yeah. gathering intel. Yeah. But the same thing applies when you're building a relationship with a new coworker or with, you know, whatever family member, whoever mm -hmm. those same pieces apply. It's kind of interesting, the human psychology of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and really, I mean, <clears throat> there's studies that have been done that, that we are more apt to, um, pay attention to people that look like us or that act like us that, you know, that we can click up with, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's, there's no, no, nothing wrong with that. Right. But we just have a tendency to do that. So if somebody can relate to me, yeah, then, you know, that that's all the better. Right. But yeah. I, I, it's amazing. It always blew me away because I would escort somebody to the jail. <clears throat> and I, in some instances, I know that person's going into jail and they are being arrested for what's called a non bondable offense, which means I can't pay $10,000 and get out. I can't pay $20,000 and get out. So I'm, I'm telling somebody I'm going to take you to the jail to get booked into jail. And I know that they are not going to come out until they have their court, until they have their trial. And a couple of them, I knew they're never coming out. And that's, that's very profound, you know? And so <clears throat> going back to me again, cause that's all I know. I remember typing paper in the middle of the night, one night, probably in like 2006, three o'clock in the morning, banging it out on a computer. Like, man, this job sucks. Why am I doing this? You know, and it's good enough. I can just turn this in. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause I had a habit of printing it out, proofreading it. And then I'd clean it up again and give it to another detective to read it. But, um, so I found out that like basically for one sheet of paper that I was writing one narrative, that person's looking at a year and a half in prison. And, and I'm not about putting people in prison, especially people that don't need to be, need to be there. But there are some people that need to be kept away from people so they can't do what right. they've done anymore. And, and that was about the best that I could get. So, <clears throat> so there is no, there is no magic bullet for talking to people. And I, I would just say, you know, turn the question on to you. Your kids have done things when they were little and when they're older that you don't like. Right. And so when we talk, I've been sworn to secrecy. <laughs> <laughs> Snitches get stitches. <laughs> so, so for the folks who are listening, you know, you, you're, you talk to your kids, right? 
um, and you tell them to they're you're blue in the face, do this, and then they do it, and and you're frustrated by it, right? But when we get a little bit older and we have this emotional intelligence, right? We can regulate our emotions. It's the same thing as like, okay, I got to keep this in check because I've got a job to do. I've got a mission here, right? And the more I focus on my mission, I can take me out of it. And I've heard cops say to me, man, how did you work with the child molesters and stuff like that? I would not be able to do that. I would go out there and I couldn't hold myself back, you know, restrain myself. And and I tell them, hey, man, I could not ride a motorcycle and scratch out tickets all day long. I'd end up, you know, losing it because I can't do that. There's so... The, the, the key part of that is we just have to understand what our limitations are. I cannot do that, right? I'm not going to be a mathematician. I'm not going to be a, a, a physician just because I don't, I don't have that in me. But um, it's, it's just that self-awareness. Yeah. I think that's an important part of, of any uh, communication process is that, is that self-reflection. Am I paying attention to my, my, the communication partner, right? The person I'm talking to, am I listening actively? Am I, is my mind drifting? Mm-hmm. Um, because a, on one hand, it's about doing a job. On the other hand, it's about relating to somebody in a meaningful way and for whatever the purpose is at the end. Right. But, but people will communicate more effectively when you're, when there's a connection that you're making, when you're establishing rapport, when you're listening actively. And, you know, one of the little tricks that I learned that I think is really interesting to demonstrate that you're listening is the repeating back, right? Like right now, I'm paraphrasing what you what we've talked about, and um, so you know you're getting back that I'm listening to you. Or even more directly, if you say something, I don't know if you said, you know, oh man, it's really cloudy outside today, and I go, oh wow, really cloudy. Mm-hmm. I'm prompting you to say more, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're like, oh yeah, yeah. The weather report you know says it's gonna rain all day. Oh, raining all day? Yeah. Oh, wow. So I think those little tools like really pull conversation along and also demonstrate that you're listening, which I think is really important part. So clearly an important part of police work. Um, but man, it's such an important part of just social psychology and our ability to relate with one another. What were you just saying? (laughs) (laughs) You can't trick me like that. (laughs) I've heard, I've heard it called, um, I've heard it called mirroring. Yeah. 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 Mirroring. And, Mm -hmm. and and I agree. It's, it's one thing that, um, that, you know, like I've, I heard what you said, I heard what you said, but, but I think more mm. like, uh, a little bit deeper meaning is like, this guy's listening to me. Yeah. He didn't hear me, but we have a connection because he's listening to what I said. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's critical. I think that's, that's important too. in yeah. any conversation. Yeah. I got busted by Anne, uh, Anne, my wife the other day. I know you know that, but for everyone else, <laughs> I got, wife is named Dan. <laughs> I got busted the other day because we're talking in the kitchen after work and I'm, you know, de- decompressing and she's like, blah, 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 whatever it was. I don't even remember now because I wasn't paying attention and I picked up my phone and I'm starts in just totally <laughs> start scrolling on my phone and she's like, you're not listening. I'm no, I'm listening. Oh, yeah. She's like, you're not listening to me. Yeah. And she was dead on. Like I was not listening, but, and look at the signal I'm sending her, right? Like totally communicating to her that I am not paying attention. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I think cops are very, very bad at that. I, I do a, uh, an impression of dinner with a cop, which doesn't translate over, uh, over just audio, but it's just this kind of like every dialogue is broken by the eyes darting off somewhere else. Right? You're at a restaurant, <laughs> the eyes go over here, the eyes go over there. And in fact, my mother-in-law was in town last week and my wife and one of my sons and his girlfriend and my mother-in-law were, were at a place where I, you know, in my town and they wanted me to come to lunch and I'm in uniform. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, um, 
I'm trying to talk. My wife's trying to tell me about her doctor's visit and stuff like that. And she just, she just puts her hand on my arm and she goes, I'll talk to you when you get home. She goes, you're so on right now. <laughs> I was like, okay. And it was almost like my skin was crawling because I just, you know, not only because of, you know, the uniform, but basically of, of what's been happening in, in, you know, in the country over the past year. So it's like, mm. um, it, I don't know if it's the same thing for firefighters. I mean, you guys kind of have those no. milkman outfits, but like no. ours in a uniform, I mean, you might as well be wearing a clown uniform because you cannot hide right? yeah. you, anywhere we walk in. Right. And, um, and people want to have conversations and, and talk to us. And, and again, people have these biases, right? And I know that's not the, not the conversation to have, but no, it's okay. the one that gets me, the one that really gets me is to be in uniform, walking somewhere, and you see a parent with a young kid with them, and they'll see you coming, and you can go one of two ways, right? It's either you know America's heroes or stay away from that guy; he's a boogeyman. And they'll kneel down and they go, "You see him right there? You better be good, or he's going to mm. take you away." Right? And I'm like, man. And back in the day, I just keep walking, uh, but now I stop and I go, "Hey, hang on a second. I said, I want to, and I talk to the kid. I go, I'm a police officer, and if there's trouble, you can go to the police for help. If there's an emergency, you can call the police for help. We're here to help you. And then I turn to the parent saying, I'm here to help you. I hope you guys have a great day. Not in a rude way, but just, yeah. you know, let them know what's up. Because, uh, I, and I told that story one time to some cops in New Jersey, and this one cop raised his hand. And he goes, man, he goes, I just did that with my kid last week. This is a cop telling his kid. His own kid. Yeah. If you're not good. You're going to go away. So it's just, you know, the, the power of, of, of language, you know, the power of, of what we say. And these are where these biases are formed. You know, the people have these, these ideas about, about yeah. how things are. What are, so, you know, you've hinted at some of the challenges that we faced this last year. And in, I'm sure in the recent, la you know, in recent last, gosh, decade or more, mm -hmm. what are, what would you, how would you label those challenges? Yeah, I, I'd say by and large personnel challenges. One, um, I pulled an entire division offline anticipating numerous fatalities, right? We did not know what COVID-19 was. We didn't know what it, what was going to happen and what it was going to look like. Um, that, you know, that was a huge piece. And then also staffing. I know you guys are, are dealing with staffing issues mm -hmm. as well. It is just tough to find good talent, right? Um, you know, and you can't blame a generation. You can't blame, you know, people are people. Right. There's some really squared away people that we met, young people, older people. Um, we are just having a hard time, you know, filling vacancies. And so for us, there's a lot of people of my vintage that 80% uh, of the people at the organization I work are retirement eligible. Yeah. And wow. that's a that's a huge, huge vacuum if those people were to go on one bad day. Mm. So that's that's tough. Uh, succession planning is 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 very difficult. Right. We've always got to be looking forward for who's going to who's going to fill my spot. Right. So the, th the three guys that I work with uh, that report to me, I'm I'm dare I use the word grooming them uh, to take my spot. And a lot of the things that I do are specifically in mind for them to take the helm. Uh, when I go. So I would say personnel issues are, are the most, most troubling right now, you know, cause it's hard. I mean, what, what kid wants to come in and do our job? Yeah. I was going to say, what is happening? it, what is it that is leading down that path? So we just did a recent hiring for the fire department and mm -hmm. numbers are way down mm -hmm. from what they were 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm wondering, you know, and this is complete ignorance on my behalf. And what is it that is reducing those numbers? Wow. That's a, that's a tough question. Um, 
I, I think for law enforcement in general, I think it's just not a palatable job. It's, um, you know, we, we generally get a, a type that kind of gravitates towards it, but we also have a generational change. Like I'm seeing people now, some of these kids that are coming in now, um, some of the things they say and they do would not probably fly back in the day because mm-hmm. when I came on, I told you what my buddy told me, keep your mouth shut. Don't say nothing. Right. <clears throat> and you know, we bag on millennials, right? We're like, or, you know, gen, what are they? Gen X now? Mm-hmm. I think uh, so. X, <laughs> y, Z, right. whatever, you know, uh, people are like, Oh, these young people, you know, they just come in and they're always asking all these questions, right? They always want to know this and that. And, you know, for us, we've got this thing called, um, like frequent patrol, right? You're an officer, you're in a car, you don't have a call for service, you're not going to an emergency call or whatever, you're supposed to do frequent patrol. You're supposed to cruise around a specific hotspot area, right? High crime area, be visible. Um, back in the day, you know, we wouldn't ask questions. My sergeant would say, Perez, go out there and, and uh, do frequent patrol. And I'd be like, yes, sir, Sarge. And I'd go out and I'd grab one of the OGs and go, hey, what's frequent patrol? <laughs> and they'd go, well, that's when you patrol frequently, right? And, <laughs> and then they'd tell me what it was, you know? These kids now, you tell them, hey, go do frequent patrol. And they're like, okay, why are we doing that? Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to keep crime down. And then they go, okay, well, you know, on Twitter, the statistics show that crime in this area are between the hours of 1,800 and 20, you know, 2,200. So shouldn't we do that? You know, you're like, why are you asking these questions, right? And so if you're not ready to adapt to those kind of lines of questions, we just, we didn't ask questions of the bosses. I didn't Yeah. back in the day. Yeah. No, I think that's an interesting generational change. And I think... I think some folks, um, like I love how you said that of our vintage, um, see that as an affront, mm-hmm. right? I see it as a kind of an evolution of, of folks. Mm-hmm. And if we ignore that and we say, listen, you don't need to know why you just need to freaking go do right. Right. Um, we're disenfranchising those people. Like they're asking why for a reason they've been trained to ask why. Yeah. So let's, while there's discretionary time, let's train them up, right? Tell them why. And they will be more effective. Um, if it's non-discretionary, you're in the middle of a hot zone. Freaking, now's not the time. This is not Frick, the time. We'll right. talk later. Right. Um, with my foot up your wazoo. Yeah. But that, uh, but that, the, the, knowing the differential in those times rather than just casting them off, um, that's probably one of the biggest changes I think we need to, to learn to make culturally. Yeah. Is to allow that to, you know, allow, support that, support that questioning. Yeah. I can, I can speak personally to that because for me, that is, that's one of the, as I've climbed up the, uh, you know, food chain, so to speak, that's been one of the things that I've had to work on because I had referent power when I was a detective, right? I worked some cases that had me visible in our agency and people saw me as a subject matter expert, right? So I would have people, city directors come to me and say, what do you think we should do about this? Or, you know, drafting a, um, drafting a media plan, a strategy for how are we going to tell the public about this? And, you know, the, the chief of our organization saying, okay, I need you to do this for us, right? That's power. And then I take that experience and I go somewhere else and I have a person who has a fraction of the time of experience that I have and they are poo-pooing what I have to say. Question, yeah. yeah, or they're poking holes in that and I'm just like, uh, you know, and there's sometimes I don't want to hear it and there's sometimes that I'm open to say, okay, well, let's, let's have a chat about it, right? Um, so I think the misconception a lot of times is we want to lump people into categories and say that young people just want to ask questions. And my experience is that there are some young people that want to ask questions and you answer their questions. They're like, copy that. I get it. I understand now. Now they know the why, right? Simon Sinek talks about, we all just want to know the why. But there are some people who get the why and they just don't like that answer. 
And so we have to be very careful to delineate between which is a person who just asks a lot of questions and who really wants to be super clear and unambiguous and the person who just wants to run the clock out and do what they want to do. Mm. That's an interesting point. Yeah, I like that. Well, <laughs> there's also those folks who have zero social cognitive skills and they're just asking why because there's just... They don't know that they shouldn't. Right. <laughs> right. And we've been pretty good. And I know your agency has been pretty good about weeding those people out. Right. But there are some cultures where that breeds, right? As people just, yeah, well, I don't know. You know, like in this day and age, I mean, we're, we're very, very thankful at our agency that we've got very, very talented people. Um, but yeah, there are just some people that don't want to, ain't gonna. Yeah. Yeah. We can't have those folks. We got to get those thin <laughs> hurt. So let me ask you this. We're, we're, let's wrap up. We're, uh, what is, what, over the course of your career and all the experiences that you've had um, coming up, what is one of the, the main lessons that you think about on a regular basis that kind of goes with you? I have found that no matter who the person is, <clears throat> employee or potential perpetrator treat people with dignity and respect and they generally will give it back and if they don't that's really not my concern um that's that's one of the tools that i've learned um as long as i'm respectful to people and i've given them a fair shake then you know i feel fine about that um <clears throat> i've also learned that i have to be ever evolving and I said earlier, malleable, like clay, right? So that I can be formed, not pushed with the wind, but formed. And I do that by having strong mentors. I have, I do that by having um, people that I can confide in and go to and ask them real stuff, you know, people who are behind the curtain. And, and sometimes that's not safe to have at work, but, but men that I trust, know and love that will tell me straight up, hey, you are barking up the wrong tree or nope. You don't do that because I invite them to do that. And they invite me to do that in their life. Um, so I, I think being malleable is a, is the biggest part of that. And I do that through continually trying to learn. Um, and if I tell myself I've got so much to learn, then I don't feel like an idiot when I get burned and do something wrong. Go, oh, I should have seen that. I should have seen that coming, right? Well, we can't see everything. And so, so if I know ahead of time that there's, you know, there's pitfalls out there and I'm going to fall in one it just happens, then I, I don't feel so bad when I do. But if it's one that I've seen, you know, I, I, I avoid the pitfalls that I see that are there. And I learned that from talking with other men who are going to tell me I would stay away from that area. And, and I say men, um, I'm saying within my trusted circle, my personal circle, those are men. Um, <clears throat> but within my, my professional group, there's women in that as well. It's just, um, you know, for, for my own personal group to keep iron sharpens iron, right? And so there are some things that are inappropriate for me to talk about with other women. That's why I choose other men inside my circle. That's that's what I'm trying to clarify. So I'm not dissing on women. There's <laughs> very capable women out there, but I think just strictly for the sake of, you know, appropriateness, it's good to have men within that circle. I love it. Well, Chris, thank you so much, brother. Thanks, I man. really love talking to you. And, yeah. and it's been a pleasure to have you in my uh in my friend circle all these years. Likewise, likewise. Um, let me ask you this. If if somebody wanted to reach out to you to, to have you come lecture, to pick your brain on something, where would they contact you at? 
Yeah. Uh, so the easiest place to get me is on my email at cperez377 at gmail.com. There it is. Thank you. Thanks, brother. That's all we have for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you're enjoying this podcast, get over to whatever platform you like to listen on. Subscribe. This podcast will drop in the middle of the night when you least expect it. Additionally, get on over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the podcast. Feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, Any feedback that you provide is valuable for me in helping us build this product to be more uh, in tune with what you want to hear. Lastly, take the lessons that you're learning here from the people that are sharing their knowledge, imbue it into your life. Remember, there are no shortcuts. So let's go on out there and get some.